welcome to Writers Talking, the podcast where we take writers and readers behind the scenes, sharing the stories within the stories. No scripts, no filters, and no holds barred as we talk about what really happens for writers as they write, edit, publish, and promote their work. Hi, I'm Anjanette Fennell, agent, editor, and writerly mentor who's worked with hundreds of writers to break through their creative challenges to uncover the stories they feel compelled to share. Now, let's get talking. Emma Gray is a novelist, feature writer, photographer, professional speaker, and accountability coach. She's been writing fiction since she first fell for Anne of Green Gables at 14, and is the author of the YA novels Unrequited and Tilly Maguire in the Royal Wedding Mess, as well as I Don't Have Time, co-authored with Audrey Thomas, and the parenting memoir Wits End Before Breakfast, Confessions of a Working Mum. She wrote her first adult novel, The Last Love Note, in the wake of her husband's death. It's a fictional tribute to their love, an attempt to articulate the magnitude of her loss, and a life-affirming commitment to hope. Emma lives just outside Canberra, where her world centers on her two adult daughters, young son, loved stepchildren and step-grandchildren, writing, photography, and endlessly chasing the Aurora Australis. Anita East is the CEO of Anita East Medispa a clinic specializing in non-surgical cosmetic medicine. A nurse practitioner and multi-award winning author for her first book, Beautiful Unique Faces, Anita is a modern beauty expert who has consulted thousands of women who often have no idea what really makes them uniquely beautiful. She holds a Bachelor of Science, a Master's in Acting, and an MSN. A mother to two darling daughters, Anita is determined to make the world a safer and more accepting place for when they grow up and ask, Am I beautiful enough? And it is often called upon to present at meetings both in Australia and internationally, presenting alongside Malala Yousafzai at the British Council in Pakistan for the Women of the World Festival in 2021. She has been published in the journal Plastic and Aesthetic Nursing, Spa and Clinic, The Latch, Body and Soul, and Professional Beauty. Listed by News Limited, Queensland is one of Brisbane's most influential businesswomen. Anita is a regular guest on various Australian and international podcast and radio segments. Anita worked as a professional actor on Neighbours and Offspring, a TV presenter for Sky Sports and the BBC, and was a professional singer with the English National Opera. Anita recently released the second edition of Beautiful Unique Faces alongside her unique beauty affirmation cards. She loves to write both nonfiction and fiction. Educating people through storytelling is Anita's passion. So I'm super excited that I have Emma and Anita here to talk. I chose you as a pairing specifically because Emma has experience writing both nonfiction and fiction. And Anita, you have a nonfiction book published, but I also know that you write fiction. And I just thought, wouldn't it be great to have you to chatting about your particular process and the ways you stretch or contract, like you feel confident, but then you don't feel confident. And the difference between the two, because there is a difference between writing nonfiction and fiction 
fiction. Yes. And so maybe if we start with you, Emma, I know we've talked before on the podcast about the different sorts of books that you've published. You've started off with a memoir. That might be a different kettle of fish as well. Number one, mm-hmm. different stage of your life, but a memoir is different again from another type. I would not want to call it prescriptive, but it, just another type of nonfiction, which you also have done uh, in co-authoring with Audrey Thomas. Do you want to talk about getting started on writing nonfiction and maybe how you've balanced the two or wherever we go with it? Sure. I think it's great to have a a variety of different projects to jump into. It can also be a bit of a trap because you can have too many things going on and Mm. and there is that thing about having to finish something. That's interesting. (laughs) Wanting to, like I'm not successful if I don't fill in the blank, finish off this. I think it's lovely to have a variety of different things to work on. There also needs to be some sort of discipline that goes on at some point that helps you to sit down and finish each of them. The the nonfiction book that I co-authored with Audrey, and we're doing another one, we're writing another one now. The first one came out of the blue in that the publisher approached us and asked us to write it. So it hadn't been on my radar. I had been writing fiction. I'd been writing a lot of nonfiction articles that supported our business and, and that sort of thing, but hadn't really expected to write a non-fiction title at that point. So it was a really exciting opportunity and something that we really enjoyed doing. But it certainly occupies a different creative and brain space when you're writing. It it feels to me more like the traditional work sort of brain. I feel like to write nonfiction, it requires planning, structure, concentration. And I feel like with the way I approach fiction, it's almost the complete opposite in that I don't want to think. I want to just download something from somewhere. And the more relaxed and hands-off I am with the story, the easier it flows. If I start thinking too much about the plot and where it's going and the structure, because I just don't write like that when I'm writing fiction, then I sort of get bored with what I'm writing. I don't want to know what happens until it happens. Very, very different style to write, but it's actually really lovely to have those two different styles, you know, to dip into depending on the day. Yeah. And the deadlines, of course. Because so so often you'll hear the advice, and this is why I wanted writers talking as well, to get as many voices as possible, people who are writing so other writers can see there's not one way to do it. There's not even just one way to do it within yourself. There are multiple ways. But one of the strong pieces of advice and the one that feels really logical and each one of us can have a different level of rebelliousness against it would be just sit down and write, write every day. And that can also not necessarily be prescriptive to use that word again. It doesn't mean write only on this project. But that sort of advice seems to make a bit more sense when we're looking at something like a nonfiction project that's based around a particular, even if it's pop culture, but uh, something to do with your business, i.e. you're using it, I don't want to necessarily say as a business card, but as a way to share some of the learnings. It all seems very structured. You know how you usually deliver it. If I were to write a book, I would look at the ways that I've interacted with writers and that would give me my natural outline, as it were. Whereas 
fiction, and you know I'm a an advocate of at least plancing, which is not pantsing or plotting to the nth degree, but a little something to give you some direction. But you can't always sit down and just what write your fiction mm. project. Do it. Go. I mean, I suppose you could, but but non fiction ideas come from the same for me anyway. They come from the same space and place that fiction ideas come from. Mm. So. I might have an idea for something in a piece of nonfiction that I'm writing and then a spark will come to me about how to present it. So I think that's certainly because I I totally agree with them. It's a case of I can't imagine doing only nonfiction and not being allowed to do fiction because I've, it just feels like, otherwise it feels like academic writing. Mm. And I've come from doing like two master's degrees where all I did was academic writing. There was no fiction allowed in that because of course they're, they're going, where's your reference? And I was like, oh damn, I made that bit up. <laughs> oh, I, can't, I can't reference that bit. So that's not allowed kind of thing. So I think that's why a lot of people, I certainly know for myself, my nonfiction has a lot of story in it and a mm. lot of fiction in it because I find certainly in life, but certainly in my work, which is what my nonfiction is about, and in my treatment room, the best way I have of getting or educating my patients and getting an idea across to them so that they can truly feel it is through story. And so why not write a nonfiction that has a lot of story and therefore enables the reader to connect with the story? And then as a result of connecting with the story, learn the lesson that mm. the nonfiction part enables them to learn. Interesting. I guess I never thought of it as fiction, but using instead that word that you've used, which is storytelling, which to me, depending on the writer, and again, I chose both of you because you are very much storytelling writers, regardless of what it is you're writing. And there are others who struggle more with that. And I suppose when I've been coaching people through writing nonfiction, if they're very practical, I might use the term instead of example saying, can you give me another example? But what I'm really asking for is to tell me another story, because if Mm. you don't give enough, enough story, I haven't got a visual of what it is you're talking about. And if I haven't got it, the reader's not going to have it. It's so true. We've had a lot of people say to us that it's the stories in our in our nonfiction book that they remember mm-hmm. and it's similar to how we present workshops too where we we tell a lot of stories and they're all true stories so we haven't made up stories we could make up stories that make sense and provide analogies for what we're saying but you know we constantly we talk about being story catchers all the time that we're going through the world and I think any writer will identify with this things happen good or bad and you just file it away and think that's a great story mm. that someday. And there'll always be an opportunity. And I think one of the most important things we can do is find a way to capture those stories because you always think you'll remember it. But yeah. <laughs> put that somewhere. Because you know, wouldn't it be, it'd be amazing to have like a little, you know, what's that film or that TV sh- series, that Netflix show, where it's they, they, they clock away stuff that yeah. they yeah. want to keep. And I'd love to be able to just do something go, weird with my eye and it go, right, remember <laughs> that. 
that's right. Store that to memory. Exactly. Oh. Yeah. So I think, I mean, some of the, the stories that we included in our nonfiction book were things about the time that we got Harry Styles to send a bandana mm. to my daughter's friend who had leukaemia and the time that my daughter and I spent five hours at the airport waiting to capture a glimpse of her favourite YouTuber and all this kind of stuff that has a, a great story behind it. But And you wouldn't sort of necessarily pick up a nonfiction book. I guess I guess there's this sort of mentality, as, as you were saying, Anita, that it's academic or it's fiction, mm. but there's so much creative nonfiction around. And I think if we loosen our thinking and imagine that that's what we're really trying to write here, I think that makes for probably a more memorable book for readers too. Mm, mm, I think that the readership has also demanded that. Mm. I know that in my personal experience too, and talking with publishers, I think that the tide has has turned and maybe it used to be no for any nonfiction book. We want an expert. They still want that. So I will put a little pin in that for me, do my little clicky thing with my eye, anyone who's listening. (laughs) But I want to ask each of you about how you handle that because each of you is an expert in the work that you do and will have seen what is actually transformative. You've already been sharing. It's more transformative for the people you work with to share the experience in such a way as to give them access to it. Story does that. Story Mm -hmm. allows them access. So in fact, being somebody who wants to write fiction or just straight up story, which always has truth in it, can help you when you're trying to do this this other project. You know, it was interesting, something you said at the beginning too, Emma, bouncing back and forth. Can you give me an example of what is that like? And then Anita, I want to hear yours because I've been walking next to you as you've created all sorts of things. And there are high days when it seems to really be working, this I'll bounce between. And then other days when you feel the external should, i.e. a deadline, whether it's explicit it or just internally, people want it. So therefore I better finish it as opposed to where you're naturally leaning. Can you talk about switching between the projects that you'd sort of alluded to earlier? How do you do that? I've found that it's been quite deadline driven in the last few years Mm. when I've actually had deadlines to meet. Previously, if I haven't, you know, and and we always have periods of time where we don't necessarily have a deadline. I mean, I, I just sent off my novel yesterday, proofread, and and that is pretty much it for me yes. in terms of this book. So I can't tell you the feeling of liberation that I now have. <laughs> Congratulations! It's this real sense of that deadline having been lifted, and now I can start to think, well, what next? And I, and I've been already in the last few weeks really wanting to get on with this nonfiction book that Audrey and I are doing. And at the same time, there's the, now the fiction part of my brain hasn't been allowed to do anything for the last <laughs> little while while I've had to focus on this other book is suddenly just it's almost like that feeling of being let out of school on the last day of term mm. four you know when you've suddenly got all of the summer holidays ahead of you it, it's got that energy to it and the idea of being able to play in a new story is just so exciting and fun but I am going to have to manage that with the the book that I'm committed to, to finishing with Audrey so it's partly I think it's even a time of day thing. Sometimes I'll allow myself to do some work on one project and then sort of the reward is do some work on another. And other times I I listen to your advice, Ange, and just do the one that I'm drawn to. And I always think that's probably the best advice. If not, it's not always 
possible if you've mm. got deadlines. But I don't know. It's I think it's actually it's a challenge, but it's also almost a break for your brain to switch projects. It's almost like yeah. a switching channels. Yeah. Mm. Oh, I love it. Yeah. And that's... what about you, Anita? So you're working on uh, your the first edition of your nonfiction book that people would have heard in the bio, Beautiful Unique Faces. And I know you'd virtually finished that. It's hard. And apologies to listeners, oh. because we've been working together for such <laughs> an so, extent of time that there was also fiction. Yes. And you've got more than one fiction yes. story. So tell yeah. me a little bit about how have you been handling the, I do this and it's related to my work. So you're able to switch into it if you need to. I think first and foremost, my love was always fiction. My love was always writing and always fiction, but I'm also, I also love to study and I love to read research papers and write research papers and all the rest of it. And so I think I've kind of, my background is acting and performing as well as medicine. And so I got my creative outlet through fiction in that way, I expect, but it was a case of what story needs to be told now. Mm. And when I say story, I don't mean, you know, I'm not separating nonfiction to from fiction, I'm saying what actual story, what needs, what message needs to go out into the world right now. And that was why Beautiful Unique Faces was born was because I was seeing this quite frightening, and this was before the pandemic, (laughs) Uh, I was seeing this quite frightening epidemic of expectation and and pressure that women were putting on themselves and uh, society was putting on women and girls to look and behave a certain way. And I was seeing 80 different patients a week and they were, I, I watched their mental health decline quite considerably. And so I was like, okay, so as a result of the expectations that they were feeling, my health declined quite considerably as well, because I was like, hang on, I'm not, I don't have a grip on keeping my patients healthy and happy. I'm failing at this. And therefore, you know, as we all do, we all have, as every character in every story has an inciting incident. And you talk about a lot, Ange, in your course, the inciting incident for me was a near-death experience. And at that point, I was like, okay, I can either keep going and just keep my message to my patients, my 80 patients a week, or I can change the narrative and get my message out to everyone because everyone needs to hear it. And by doing, and the best way to do that is by writing the book. Yeah. And so that was, you know, it, it, there wasn't really a, oh, you can or you can't. It's like, actually, you don't have a choice. You've got to do that, which I think you probably remember. It was like, I need to get this done. Yeah. It's I mean, there's out. a, you have a, a, I feel like this is that tipping point. We can have an internal niggle, a little nit- Yes, that's, that's how story goes as well. Everything is fine. Maybe we feel like it's not all fitting right, but that's okay. Never mind. And you'll see that in opening scenes of many movies mm. where it's mostly bumping along. Okay. But there's a glimmer here and mm. there that everything isn't perfect, but we can still get by without changing things. And the inciting incident is that point at which you just even though there is still a little wobble on the other side, it's a false wobble because you can't not change. Once you've had it, absolutely, that yeah. is that watershed moment where you yeah. say, okay, I could have done it before, but now it's, I have to do it. Yeah. And there's a greater purpose. I love hearing that. I think even people writing straight up fiction, and again, mm. I'll always put that caveat. It's not ever straight up fiction. There's always this internal drive. I just listened to an interview and they were talking 
about I'll have to look it up and maybe put a link. But another writer said, or poet said, this obsession will follow writers. I talk Mm. about it usually saying in terms of like a story message or theme is the same until you or unless you work it out. And most of our favorite authors, especially within fiction, have these certain themes. They just keep playing them over and over. And we love it because we like the familiarity we know what to get from them. We know these certain things are going to show up. So there are these themes that play over and over. But once you hit that tipping point, the story has to come out, Mm. right? And I think that's what happened to you. Mm, Your own health inciting incident hit the same point that everybody else. And it was just before the pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. You already, you could see it happening. The other thing that's different, and Anita, we've talked about this. I think you're at the beginning of every wave, which can be a little bit uncomfortable for you because you're shouting it and people are like, yeah, yeah, no, we're good. But you can sort of see it before it's come and taking everybody over. So you had that call and you mm-hmm. had to get it out. So, you so I had to get it out. I got it out, which was great. And I've just, and, and it was weird because I kind of, once I got that first edition draft off to the editor, the way I kind of rewarded myself was to start on a fiction idea that had been the main, the lead character had been gnawing away at my brain the whole time I was writing my, (laughs) writing beautiful, unique faces. So I kept saying to her, your time, I know you're there. Your time will come. Trust me. You, you just keep fermenting. If you like, keep stewing in the goodness. And I promise that I will open the box and let you out. And so I was so excited to get that first draft off to the editor because I knew I'd have about six weeks or so of reprieve. And so then I started on that particular fiction. And that was so much fun because I just literally just downloaded whatever she wanted to tell me, uh, whatever scenes came out and I just literally, I just started writing those. And that was really exciting to have. It's almost like every time I've written nonfiction, I need to have, it's almost like having oh, that delicious reward mm. is either, you know, something delicious to eat or something delicious to, to drink or looking at a beautiful view or whatever it is, or, or a cuddle with someone. It's that getting that moment of, oh, now I can just get out of the, the structure of nonfiction and mm. I can just, oh, what's my, what does this person want, want me? me to say about them what do they want to share and then I got the first edits uh back and she was that character was shelved (laughs) I went through those edits and practically wrote another hundred thousand words or whatever for the anyway so yes it's for me it's a case of I'll reward myself with a bit of fiction after doing non-fiction but I have to have lots of story lots of characters in my non-fiction yes because that's what excites me and relationships and that so in my nonfiction, I do bring out lots of like my characters, if you like, my case studies, the combination of lots of different women, lots of different patients that I've encountered over the years in my practice. I.e. we're not calling out any imp- anybody Absolutely. in particular, everybody no. sort of, but I think that's what's compelling for both of you about your nonfiction. And the reason it hits hard is because whether they're very closely aligned with a particular person or not, they are real and 
And we can sense that. I've said in past episodes as well, the magic is in the detail, not the devil, uh, at least when it comes to writing. And that heart of truth is what makes the stories that you're sharing so compelling because we can see ourselves or our sisters or our parents, brothers, friends, whatever. And it helps us down that pathway, right? We're taking everyone on a journey. And I think the fact that each of you writes fiction is what makes the storytelling, the case study, whatever we want to call it in the nonfiction, that much more compelling because you've got that exercise. It's interesting too, that for both of you, and again, Anita, I know that I've worked with you a little bit on this and it's funny because I might have advice, but my ultimate advice is going to be, if you have a way of working it that you're pretty happy with, then it doesn't matter what I say. If a pantser is having success and they never hit any moments of strife, you pants it. And we've talked about before, be a binge writer Mm. as long as it's working for you and only worry about switching if it doesn't feel good anymore. It doesn't seem to be working. What occurred to me, because you both sort of mentioned it, but it feels very much like nonfiction has an easier, more natural inclination towards some structure. And even if you're using, so you use different terminology, each of you, but you both talked about having a spark of something. So, and you were talking about a memory of a story, put that in. And that to me related to what you were talking about, Anita, is a little sparkle of something that's still walking around in the world and saying, oh, I just saw this happen. This is related to this point within the nonfiction manuscript. Therefore, that's what I'm going to put in. But nonfiction seems more amenable to explicit structure, by the way, still going to (laughs) change because of editing and and for the better, but that for each of you fiction and part of the joy or the reward of it, maybe is this feeling that I get to see because I'm watching you listeners, I think can hear too that reward. It's like a great piece of chocolate or this, you know, really refreshing drink or, oh, thank God I've offloaded that heavy thing that I'm sure was great as well. The nonfiction was great. But now it's like getting permission to run outside in a rainstorm. It's and nobody's saying escape. it's a feeling of escape. Yeah. Yeah. World. And when we're writing nonfiction, we're usually writing about the real world in some way. Mm. We can be in fiction too. I think something that's popped into my mind while we've been talking is that about this idea of the theme, because I started with grief as my theme and I oscillated between a few different ideas for a book. I knew I'd write about grief, but I didn't know whether that was going to be nonfiction, memoir or fiction. And I thought about, you know, I sort of experimented a little bit with the idea of a grief book that was nonfiction. And I eventually landed on the idea of doing a novel that was loosely based, some of it sort of on the premise of, of what happened to me. And I'm so glad to have been able to write on this theme from one step removed where it's not me, it's her. And it gave me a sense of um, being able to explore really, really deeply some of my own emotions but from a step removed. And I think there was just such freedom in being able to do that. I almost feel like I was able to put more in to a fiction story than I could If I was telling my own story, perhaps. I mean, I'm pretty open with what I talk about. You are very, well, I think people would be surprised because you live your life. And when I say this, I think it sounds weird, but 
if you know M, you'll know it's on Facebook. Like we see it every step. Um, and in a, in a beautiful way, right? We all have our, well, I might call it the, the comfort zone, but it's where you processing. It's really interesting. You say that too. And I can see there's no hierarchy to this is more valid or valuable or less. I just finished a book called In Love by Amy Bloom that is definitely a grief memoir was so in the grief and she could tell it to the level that she could tell it. There were all sorts of beautiful things, but I love harnessing the freedom of being able to express what you want to. And you know, I've always said this, this fix it with fiction. We talked about that years ago as well. There is a freedom and there's no one choice. I was thinking as you were saying that too, and maybe one day you will. Hmm. I was thinking if thing. I could. you yeah. get to that point and hmm. then you can do that one. It's why you can write multiple memoirs as an in individual because they're all different, but giving yourself the freedom. And I think that's why when you and I were talking and you would say, oh, I'm writing this, it was, yep, great. It didn't matter what you came to me with. It was, yep, great. Because ultimately I trust the writer to discover what it is that is going to allow them to give maximum vulnerability And to to your point, you could write more, not more truth, but yeah, more truth. Like you could write more freely and freedom is what you're talking about. Write more freely by allowing it through the lens of fiction, knowing Mm. that there's so much truth. And we've talked about this before, the the hilarious feedback that you could get from an editor who says, yeah, look, I mean, that's just a little too much. And they've taken a very specific real life detail. And you're like, yeah, I, I didn't make any of that up. Not the people, not the conversation. All of that was true. That's not the quote unquote fiction part. Yes. Yeah. Right. I think too, when you're writing something that involves a family, so Mm. if I was to write the memoir would involve more than just me. Mm. So fictionalizing that, let me explore what would happen to a family without it being, without talking about my own children. So that, that was another area of liberation. But I also think back to a conversation that you and I had with Ali Watts, my publisher, and we were just talking about other story ideas and I came up with several and they they all had a had a death dead partner in them like every one of them was a grief storyline and I then said something like oh gosh you know I wouldn't want to get typecast and she said if this is what you want to write write more of this you know and it it was it was sort of not what I expected to hear and it was actually really almost having the permission to just write what you feel called to write and I feel like I haven't said everything I'm going to say about grief yet and the opportunity to write another book that might have a grief storyline in it is is part of my own processing of what I've I've been through as well. So I think until you feel like you've really turned that topic over and there's nothing extra that you could add to that, keep going. That's that's the obsession part. Hmm. And I think that that word obsession is so laden with other things. But when it comes to creatives and nonfiction writing is also incredibly creative, there is structure, but you've both expressed how there's this huge creative component to it and it can change. But until the obsession wanes, you just keep writing about the same thing and you don't sit in a place of being too critical. I would say, Anita, what I know about with your fiction as well, are there are themes. In fact, I would say what you end up writing, even though they're in a different, we'll say vehicle, right? Different time periods. So a different vibe to it, maybe a slightly different market, but the themes that you're going to tackle are also related to themes 
that you've got in your nonfiction book. Absolutely. They're all right? about, absolutely. My my central theme is throughout everything I've ever kind of played with and written is finding your power as a, as a woman, finding where your power lies and where your joy is. Mm. So, and finding what makes you different from everyone else and hanging onto that as a good thing, not as a bad thing. Yeah. And I think when you were saying earlier about people connecting M to your the story that you wrote, the fiction that you wrote about grief as opposed to it being a non-fiction, is people find in story regardless of where, which kind of avenue it's written, they find the bits that they need mm. to heal themselves and and they can pick up, readers are so clever, they can pick up on the bits that are cathartic, not only for them, but for the writer as well. So you writing your book and me writing my book, they were hugely cathartic, no doubt for both of us. And they would have been, they're cathartic for readers as well. Like readers say to me, they connect automatically with a with a particular case study and they say that sounds like me I had no idea that other women felt this way as well mm. it's, it's a case of what feels right and true for you to write about is exactly right is exactly mm -hmm. what should be written about because it'll connect with the people that need to hear it it's so true and I think we've all experienced that as readers when we resonate so closely with a novel or a, a non-fiction title and we just think that that author was in my head and in my life, did they have cameras on the walls of my mm. house? How do they know me so well? And yes. That feeling that I think we need to go for as writers to make that kind of connection and to, to write something that feels so real, whether it's fictional or not, that people can't help but see themselves in it. I think you're absolutely right. Mm. It's funny, some of the other conversations in Writers Talking, in fact, I think the episode that's going to be coming out uh, just before this one, they were they're fiction and that some of the feedback was, oh, I know that person was me. And every time that, you know, the authors were laughing because of course they were like, they were wrong. It, yeah. it was not them, but it's testament to the to the skill and the craft. And part of the experience that I've watched authors go through is it's not skill. And I'm for listeners, I'm pointing to my brain. It's more toward the heart. It's a, it's a surrendering and observing. So if you're a keen observer, you're going to share truths that are supposedly made up. But those are truths that you are observing out in the world. And that gives that access for a reader to say, oh my God, that was me. Maybe because we spend so much time thinking that we are so different or are so yeah, alone or it's that's only right. me. I, I will never forget this uh, conversation I had with a patient just, it was probably only about two weeks ago, actually. And she said, she was, because I've got a copy of my second edition book in my waiting room and she was reading it and I came out and I, I said, oh, come on in, you know, and she said, oh, and she closed the book and I said, oh, keep reading. <laughs> it's up to you. She said, she said, this is me, isn't it? And she was pointing at one of the case studies. And I said, I looked at her and I said, what makes you think that? And she said, well, for a start, her name is spelt the same way as mine. It's my name. And I said, and I, I thought it was so funny. And I said, interesting. And she said, and she's going through everything that I'm going through. And I said to her, I can promise you hand on heart. Heart, that is not you, but it is every woman 
of your age who's in their 60s or every woman, it's every woman. It's not you, it's everyone. And she was like, and she kept saying throughout our whole appointment, she said, but the way she did this, that's exactly what I do. And I said, that's right. That's exactly (laughs) right. And did you see the resolution at the end of her case study, at the end of her, her journey? That's the resolution, because each of the characters has a resolution one way or another, they come to a realisation of something. Did you see, you know, that's what I'm always drumming into you every time I see you. It's like the exact same final Mm. final bit to the story. So Wow. I think you just have such a, a beautiful opportunity with your practice too to see this and to get to recognize. And then every now and again, we need to turn it on us. So yes, you're here on Writers Talking. And I know that you are individually writers who go out in the world and might have those moments, right? Listeners may think, oh, see, they've got their stuff together. They've finished books. They've been published they're, you know, they're great. No, you know, we've had, this as a theme prior, but I just want you to see how you're sharing what I would love for you to re-listen to, but in, through the lens of, as a writer, oh, it's just me that experiences this. No, if I wrote a book and I had a, a character called Anita, it wouldn't be you. It would be all of these writers who go through this experience. You feel alone, like I'm the only one who's experiencing this or having to learn this quote unquote lesson or going through this particular grief. Isn't it fascinating too? And um, that on that topic, and I love that your publisher said this because I feel like I'm often the one saying this and in publishing, they don't as much, but individuals get the truth of it. Ultimately, a writer has to write what they have to write. From a practical standpoint, a publisher wants to have stories that they are going to publish that are going to sell for sure. But what Ali knows that I know, which is probably why I always really got on with Ali, is that there is this intersection. What we want are the best stories written by the writers who need to write them. And there's no sense in saying, no, just write this topic, this topic, and this topic they're selling. So write your truth, write another novel or or five that have this grief thread with all of these different pieces that we're moving around because you will have walked around in the world and you will have run into people and or had an experience yourself. And then that lets you take a little seed, a little kernel of truth and grow it to something that's not exactly you or not exactly them, but it's a truth that needs to be explored rather than saying, hey, you know, you don't want to be typecast. So now switch it. In fact, in publishing, if they sell really well, they want you to keep writing that. Mm. And it's interesting because the, the next idea that I, that's really burning away at the moment in my imagination is a story where somebody dies, but she doesn't have any grief and yes. normally would. And so it's a, it's still the same theme in a way, mm. but very, very different. But I also think that just going on from what Anita just shared about the resolution, I think that as writers, when you write on a topic that's really hard and, and difficult and, and potentially triggering from your own life, I think part of the joy of it is being able to delve into those really traumatic and difficult emotions, but also have that sense of hope and that life-affirming potential in the future. Mm. Um, and to be able to rewrite, you know, that happy ending, I guess, particularly, well, I'm, I'm writing rom-coms, so... <laughs> 
that's where that's it's going. And um, <laughs> and so I think that that also is is very therapeutic as a writer, but it's also a nice thing for readers if they want to escape into that sort of yeah. sort of world to have that sense of hope and that sense of progress and the sense of character growth because it's the character growth that we hope is going to be reflected in our own lives as well. And I think play around with these characters that are very kind of chaotic and they've got lots of, you know, it's that classic thing of, of driving the character up a tree and then throwing rocks at them. And there's a lot of a lot of that. And it feels like it's reflective of my own experience. Mm. And then I love to rescue that character. And yes. partly I think I'm rescuing a part of myself. And hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I think hopefully readers will also feel that way when they read it. Absolutely. I, and why not you as a, a teller of stories into the world, why not you have the best opportunity to heal mm. while you're writing? It's yeah. it's absolutely why why we chose to write and not to do something completely different is because of the the beautiful feeling we get to heal in a safe space and to test mm. the waters. We're testing the waters, aren't we? We're yeah. going, if this were to happen, what would happen then? And it's such it's so important to heal while writing. I love it. I love yeah. that, Em. I really love that. I was just thinking the power of it too reminds me of what we hear about visualization, the power of visualizing. So you can visualize your muscles into believing they've had this exercise. The beauty with your story too, Em, is you're getting that feeling of catharsis and healing and hope, even though your story didn't play out the same way your character story did, but you get to keep the emotion. And I guess that's also the gift to your point, Anita, the writer gets it the first time and then hopefully the readers get it for their own unique piece. And and maybe you felt that way too. It's maybe why sometimes we think characters and books are our real life friends. And then we go, oh, wait a minute, they exist in a book. And, or we think they're walking around in the world and we want to go back to them, right? We want to reread the book because we want to go hang out with that friend again. Mm -hmm. We want that feeling. We want to retain that feeling of hope or resolution. Like I made that journey. I had that transformation because it's feeling based, not practical based. Well, see, when we write stuff that is healing for us, we get that dopamine and serotonin hit. And when readers read that, especially if it's written in a way that, you know, enables them to feel the rawness of what we've written, they too get that. And it's kind of, so it's not only is it heartfelt, but it's chemically driven in our body. It's scientific. It's scientific. Absolutely. So, you know, it's so important that those stories that we need to be told whether they be fiction or non-fiction. And sometimes something might start off as being fiction and then turn into non-fiction or vice versa. You might be writing a, you know, thinking I'm going to write this non-fiction book. And then next thing you know, because when you're writing fiction, you like Em said, you're a step removed. You've almost got that theatrical fourth wall up. Mm. And that's a safe place to be when you're not ready to be 100% vulnerable in a non-fiction book. And it's a lovely place, like Em said, to test the waters. And like you've always said, Angie, you you go where the joy, you write what's bringing you joy, as long as you don't have a deadline at that particular (laughs) moment, you write where the, where your heart and your, you know, your heart tells you to write. Yeah. Well, and I use the word fun specifically because sometimes the places we need to write, it's like getting a massage and they, they drill into a muscle that hurts. Sometimes that is fun, right? Sometimes looking at those things that are tender are the things that we, 
need to do to feel better rather than avoid them. I love the idea about that fourth wall as well, because I've experienced that watching writers like you. And again, this loose feeling of I've got a bit of structure, but not too much constantly in conversation with your creative side, giving yourself permission to go where you need to. Even for those writing memoir, that's some of my first advice is to, as much as possible, take away this idea, well, altogether of a CCTV sort of life. You have to know that your perspective is all you've got and it's okay to share it. You can edit later, just keeping that in your mind. You will edit later. So if you need to clean it up or whatever, but always being driven from that place, like M would have started probably thinking I'm going to be writing a, memoir, whatever, you start getting the words out and then you allow yourself to flow over to where you feel that you can expand. If you start writing in a certain direction and you feel shut down or just practical things like you don't want to sit down at the desk and write it, or even when you're out and about, you're thinking about anything except that, that's a clear indicator (laughs) that that's Mm. not the direction you should go and giving yourself permission to do it. I would even say if you have a contract. So a contract is it's binding, but there's always an, a termination clause, by the way. And if you don't have support uh, as with an agent or something like that, there are local societies to you almost everywhere where you can get some support. You need support to tell you how to get out and there should always be an escape clause. I've heard of people who've actually had returned advances and nobody likes to think of that, but there is nowhere that somebody can force you. And I guess that's the rebel in me is going to say, yeah, no, if you don't want to write it and you're getting all these walls shut down or your creativity, find a way out. And publishers, by the way, are used to it and are used to extending deadlines. I happen to work with so many women that are high achievers, overachievers, that the concept of letting someone down is like, I couldn't possibly ask for an extra day or an hour, even though we've had a death in the family or something catastrophic. And like, of course you can put off deadlines. I've heard of stories of of writers putting them off for (laughs) when I say much less, like much less, like I just, just, I'm just not feeling it. I need an extension. Okay. So you can do that, but it's a real balance. And the reason I want to share all of these voices, as I've said, is because I want every writer listening to recognize that they can go where they need to go with their creativity. And that's not hedonism. And that's not self-obsession or selfishness. It's really about knowing that created creativity is born from a place where you're in relationship with it. Mm. So that's that, everything you just said made me so uncomfortable. And <laughs> <laughs> about not following yeah. through with yeah, a contract. About canceling I, contract. I thought that I thought to myself, oh, I was like, what? No, no, no. Like no. I said. Really weird. <laughs> um, and, and the other side of it that, that occurred to me actually, while you were saying that was this whole thing about perfectionism because mm-hmm. I just said to a friend this morning, I'm so glad I've sent that book back. It needed to be confiscated from me at this point mm. because I just would have tinkered around with that forever yeah. and we need to move on to the next project. And I think just the concept of being able to say, nah, I don't, I don't feel like it. <laughs> well, because, yeah, like that. I can, I can see why it makes sense because you could have signed up for something that now you yeah. don't. Yeah. It totally makes sense. It just didn't occur to me as an option. Yeah. <laughs> 
not that I've ever felt that way with anything, thank goodness, so far. See, I wonder, like when you when you were saying that, Ange, I was thinking, but surely if you've signed up for something, there was a thread within you once that thought it was a good idea. So you're now turning around and saying, no, I don't want to do it. Is that a little bit of self-sabotage? Is that, you know, what is that? But then like Em just said, it's it could certainly, you could have signed up for something thinking, yes, I'd love to write a book on cork boards. And then it comes to it and you go, what did I do? (laughs) I think think there's a space between. And I think, and as I said, I surround myself with people who are uh, finishers, completers, uh, almost always, and who would never do that. But knowing that it's a possibility and it doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong is really important to hear. Mm -hmm. Because Anita, you brought something up that seems totally unrelated to writers talking, but it, it isn't. Would you tell somebody who stood up on a platform and was like, on the high Ah. adrenaline, having fun, I'm going to bungee jump. And are you saying, well, but they're all strapped in. What are they, self-sabotaging? No, No, you can say say no at any minute. So as a lesson, (laughs) yeah, but as a Mm. lesson to ourselves, Mm. it may not get there, but give yourself the space of saying there is a safety platform. And I can say, hey, look, I just need to take a breath, right? There are all sorts of things, but I work with women like you who your house could burn down. And I bet you'd say, I'll get the hotel and I'll be there with the few meager possessions I have left. And I'll do the, would like, I'll still come in under deadlines. Like you don't have to. Yeah. This happened to me when Jeff died, because Mm. as you remember, the book was due that week. Yeah. And we did get a a little extension of a couple of weeks. Thankfully, I had a co-writer. A couple of weeks. Like that doesn't. I know. We were at the very end of the process. You know, we weren't still drafting the first draft or something. But because we were at the end of the process, then everything was all sort of lined up for printing and whatnot. But, you know, I wasn't in my right mind at all and couldn't have done it without a co-writer. But looking back on it, I now think it didn't matter. Like none, none of the, the timing was just irrelevant. Yeah, a bigger thing. Um, it's it's really it's all just made up. It's yes, <laughs> nothing well, matters along these right. lines. It's Sorry. inconvenient maybe for people, but you know life is more important um, and the mental health of writers I think is just so important mm-hmm. and it is a stressful activity I mean I was down at Bermagui camping in torrential rain last week trying to proofread my book oh, <laughs> in the tent and you know I think gosh people think that writing is such a glamorous I thing know. it's just not it's, do you know they think it's so easy as well I'll never forget when I released my first book and they were like or oh, even my mum my mum said to me Oh, what? How about that other book that you're working on? Is is that out yet? <laughs> and that was like about two months later. Pay, pay, people say to me all the time, "Oh, when is your next book out yet? When's your next book out?" Mm. Like a couple of months after. Like I'm not doing like, anything else in my life, by the way. That's all I'm doing is just the book. Look, is and, stressful. But, but allowing yourself to laugh and having a place to go and talk. Mm. I'm gonna shout it from the rooftops over and over. Find a community. Let this podcast serve as your proxy community for as long as you need it, or come find one. Uh, I've got one, but finding other people you can talk to about this. So 
you don't mm-hmm. internalize these ridiculous things. Like well, that's hey. when you start thinking that there's something wrong with you. And it's like, gosh, yeah, I'm, I'm not good at writing or I'm <laughs> not this because, you know, I haven't got yeah. my second book out in, in two sleep. months. Yeah. Two months <laughs> after the, the other there one. Is, there's a lot of dialogue out there in some writing communities about churning out a lot of books in a short space of time. Oh, it's in the ads. And some people can do that. Yeah. And some people might be able to do that. I know I couldn't do that. And whether or not that's my process, my perfectionism, I don't know, or it's just not possible or, or I don't know. There's just, there's a lot of that kind of talk. And I'm talking about people who are writing 10 books a year, that sort of yeah. thing, like a book a month. And I think you've just got to look at that and say, is that for me? Mm-hmm. No. Am I, do I want to be writing that much or that that sort of frenetically? Um, no. And, and a lot of them are using tools like dictation, which some people can do, some people can't do. I feel like I can't do it. I have to see it on a screen. So that's never going to be me. And also I just like to sort of marinate in a story for longer than yep. a month. Um, <laughs> yeah. I couldn't imagine. Years I'm talking here. Yeah. yeah. Well, look, right. the point being, and I know, Anita, what you're talking about with the ads, there are two. It's not even saying fiction or nonfiction. Although, you know, I'm always going to push back against bestseller in a weekend. You can come up with a bestselling idea. Potentially, you will not write a book, not anything I would call a book, in a weekend. I don't think you could literally get all the words out, even if you were typing 24 hours a day for those two days. Anyway, that said, if we don't even look at the quality, because I'm going to open it up to, there may be some people who have capacity and can write quality in a short space of time. The important part of what you were saying, M, which is universal advice if it doesn't feel good to you and it feels like pressure rather than joy, don't do it. You don't have to do it. There are some people who take years and years and years to write and redraft and edit, and they come out with magnificent work. And that is their process. So there is no award, I suppose, especially if we talk about time and our mortality, you don't get an extra gold star for being really quick at it. If the process sucks, I would I would say but don't where's, do it. Where's don't. the enjoyment for the writer? Because like I like to sit with before I've even told anyone about a story idea or even put any two words on on a on a page. I like to sit with my my lead and I like to just I have this moment of oh, I've got this secret. I've got this and I've got this relationship, this secret relationship with this person. And I love that. That's just like, and no one else knows about it mm. until I decide that it's time to come out. So, and that could take, like Em said, you want to sit with an idea for a while. It could take, I could sit with that idea for months and months, years until mm. I'm ready to put that out. So, and that's so enjoyable. That's where I get my dopamine and my serotonin from. That's where I get my oxytocin from feeling that connection that mm. closeness with someone else who I'm ultimately in control of. Um, <laughs> but- so you say, so you say, and the more you go through fiction, I would say, and then they say, I'm not talking to you today. 
<laughs> and that's, in which case and it would be troublesome, but I get it. I think. But when people are churning one out a month, are they void of that joy? Because I feel I sorry for I them. Mean, well, maybe they're not. Maybe they are getting the dopamine from being able to tell so Produce. many stories. You know, yeah. so so yeah. it's just a thing where it's either for you or it's not for you. I yeah. Think. But but I I don't know. I, I feel a sense of pressure and burnout already at the concept of. <laughs> just think just, of it. just in the last five minutes, you saying yeah. it. I'm like. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but I do what I would love to get into a pattern with is sort of a book a year. And I can see mm-hmm. myself easily, uh, I say easily, that's a very loaded word. Go with that. Go with that. Go with it writing a book a year and having enough time in that year to tell the story, to redraft it, to have it edited, to sit with it a little bit, because I feel like there's all these stories queued up, you know, that have been marinating anyway. But that to me feels like it's a pattern that I could fall into. But I think it doesn't have to be, you don't have to have any one particular frequency unless you've got a several book deal, which apparently we can just get out of it. Well, I was going to (laughs) say you can move it around. Ultimately, by the way, in publishing as a business, they want quality. So you might have a multi-book deal and you present the second or the third book. And we just had someone on who had got three books into a four book deal. And they're like, yeah, no, we're going a different direction. So not getting paid for that. Lest you think it's only the writer who is seeing out these different terms of a contract. No, no. Also the publisher. But ultimately, because there are so many books put out every year and it's highly competitive, I don't Mm. begrudge a publisher doing what they need to. I mean, it sucks individually and or for the readers who are like, where's my fourth book? I'm I'm fully invested here. And so that lovely writer is actually releasing that fourth book for the readers, which is beautiful. However, a publisher and readers... And hopefully the writer want the best book possible, not just a book. And so again, this is that relationship that you as a creative have with the work. If you are operating, and again, listeners pointing to my head, if you're operating only from an intellectual level, like I've signed a contract, I've said I've done it, you're not bringing your best to the table when it comes to that story anyway. So you would know both of you have multiple fiction projects and you've gone through that experience where one may take precedent. And I will say on maybe not any given day, but at a certain time and giving yourself the gift of allowing the magic to tell you which one wants to come more fully formed. To your point, these stories are in you. You've got a queue of stories that could come out. And I have faith. This is part of my spirituality. I have faith the one that's supposed to come out next will come out. And so one book a year is totally doable for you, by the way. And you just need to reroute some of the other things you've got in your life to Mm. give you that space. But ultimately, if you wanted to, it would happen. It's like saying, I don't have time to write. Everyone has time to write. Time exists. It's whether you want to exist for that time to do it. It isn't a practical issue. It's a very flexible issue. In fact, I'm proofreading a manuscript in a tent, dripping probably. This sounds horrific to me, but all things are possible. If that feels good to you, you can make that happen. Mm-hmm. And you should only see out the next one. So I would say too, if you have a multi-book deal and you want to keep it and they want you to keep it, but you need space, you can stretch a time frame. And in publishing and look, 
lots of ways, it's a really far in advance sort of thing. Having said that, both of you, I think Anita, you to me are an upholder. Gretchen Rubin's tendencies, I've put the link in another past episode. I think you're, I think officially you might be an obliger, M, but I don't know. You might be an upholder as well. Have you ever taken the quiz? If I did, it was ages ago. And I yeah, I, am, I see I'm you. Just... <laughs> and and a, the, really the difference is an upholder is going to make a New Year's resolution and do it or get a deadline and do it. They will meet it. They feel in, internal pressure to get it done. An obliger is very similar, except an obliger maybe will do the New Year's resolution or maybe not. If it's not said and there isn't a commitment, like if you say, I'm going to meet you for coffee, you will meet the person for coffee, even if you feel sick, even if you're an introvert and say, I really hope they say no and cancel on me. But you'll show up if you said you're going to show up. Yeah. Well, I mostly will, but I won't do that at all costs. Yeah. Well, look, and sometimes we learn lessons in life. And I think that's one that I'm pointing this out. So a publisher may say, we've got this docket, but they're a business. You could, Mm. you could be a pain for them. Ultimately, you have to live your life every day. And so if you need a little bit more time, you need to take a little bit more time. Is this because, are we feeling this way maybe because for writers, the idea of a publisher accepting our book is the dream? Yep. It's the thing we've been wanting for decades, most, yeah. most of us. It feels like such a privilege that, and I remember saying with Ali, you know, I just was so grateful to her that she gave me the time of day to have a call on Zoom to talk about or, my book. For her, it was separate. It was like, she says, I am so glad that you were willing to have a Zoom call with me before we have a contract. Ultimately, everybody's human. Mm-hmm. I, but I think where you're going with that is right, Em. I think some of it is this sense of somebody's accepting me. And I know the writerly feeling inside, even when you've got a contract is I better not stuff it up. They can take Mm. it away at Mm. any time. I guess that weighs the power. Strictly speaking, I suppose they could, but they're not going to do it at the drop of a hat. Not because you're annoying and calling them all the time, like name any number of things. It's not that easy. They have to have a reason by the way. And that's not one of them, or they asked for an extension. Again, the reason to have an agent or some sort of support system that can talk you through any contract. But you're right, the internal experience and pressure that writers put upon themselves, especially when they have a contract, is also why some writers will sign contracts with shonky businesses, because somebody has said, we want your book, and they look like it, or they are a business, but they look like a business, but it's not actually traditionally published. But that feeling of validation, I think, gives that added pressure of that I better show up as my perfect self for fear of them taking away that validation, or I'm not actually good enough, or they're going to, all that imposter syndrome stuff, they're going to see that I actually can't write. I better not turn in a proofread with a single typo remaining. By the way, that's not how our brains work. So I know they will have somebody else also proofreading. (laughs) So you have, it's not just you with a torch. You know, after the the 9,000th read through, I've glazed over. (laughs) (laughs) 
And she said, don't worry, we've got other eyes on it, you know. Yes. And she said it and she also said that uh, most books will have, you know, yeah. a typo Still, or two yeah. and that they can always fix those up immediately for the e-books and they can fix them up in the next print run and that sort of thing. It's you just can tell different. how often she would have had to say yeah. that. Yeah, exactly. Because there's that fear, like I better be perfect. But you're right. That's part of the reason that you put that pressure on. If I could have a whiff for all writers is that you take only so much pressure as you know, gets you to hit the level you want to. We do want growth. So to your point, um, and even yours, I wouldn't say two months later, you better, where's your book, Anita? However, because you want to be doing this, whether it's the majority of your time or even part-time, there's nothing wrong with having a day job. And in fact, it's mostly the way people have to do it have a day job and write. But even if it's because you like to exercise different parts of yourself, if you want to be writing, giving yourself that knowing of where's my stretch point, I would like to do it slightly faster. I would like to grow into it where I'm writing at least one book a year. And if you're doing that, then you think about all the other things you're going, you're just going to be juggling. Mm. And look, we're all juggling. And all I the think I'm already. It's, it's very much a case of trying to definitely, you know, work out what's what the priority is. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, absolutely sitting there and saying, you know, this is, this is the story I want to tell now and this is what I'm going to focus on. But truth be told, we do have priorities. We do have stories, fiction or nonfiction, that need to be told first for whatever reason, generally from external pressures and so forth. And even when we're writing those, you know, say we have to get a certain amount done of that nonfiction book or whatever, then rewarding ourselves with a bit of fiction writing means that we feel like we're using those muscles as well. Because when I rewrote this year, when I, well, it was over a couple of months and I rewrote the second edition for Beautiful Unique Faces. And I remember saying to you, Ange, I said, I can't, can't do the last two chapters. <laughs> I can't, I, no, or it wasn't even the last, yeah. it was the last, it was, it might've even just been the last, last few pages or whatever. And I said, I'm, I'm done. I'm done. I actually can't physically look at it anymore. And I, cause I'd rewritten quite a lot of it, but the way for me to reward myself after that, and you said, don't worry, I've got, I've got it. <laughs> I've got it. It's okay. I'll check over everything. Cause I'd already read, but it was a case of editing was to sit down and write quite quickly, a couple of thousand words on a, on a short story idea that had been festering away in my mm. brain. And then after that, I went, Oh, good. So I got a little bit of that imagination stuff happening around the work stuff because it is my work as well as my work so it was nice to kind of have that just get that stretch right and you think you're at the end and M is in a place where she's like I'm not reading that again again yeah you are I hear you but not now give it space and this is why space time perspective they're all really important parts Mm -hmm. of the process as well (laughs) I think I'll wrap up or will go on forever and ever. But I will say the joy of talking to the two of you is is your intimate knowledge of bouncing back and forth between things that seem, and I guess from the outset, very disparate. In fact, you've shown us already in this conversation the ways that it doesn't matter what you're writing, you can bring a little bit more structure. And look, there are people who structure the heck out of fiction. They got their spreadsheets and the post-it notes, and you can use that at any time. You don't have to start with it. But the pair of you have just a little little bit of structure and it's relevatory over time. The more you go, the more you write, the more you know, like writing in a fog, you see a few steps ahead and you kind of know where you want to end.
end and you were talking about hope. Hey, even if that's the destination, Hopeville, great, let's get there. It's not a specific scene, but a feeling. And for those listening who either aspire to or are already writing both fiction and non and thinking, is it, am I weird to do it? Am I doing it wrong? You know, is there a better way? Hopefully you've gotten to see inside the process for a couple of other writers who are there with you, who write on these varied topics and yet can also show how they're really writing similar stories. It's about touching people's hearts, being able to say, we see you. It's not just you, individual case study. (laughs) You are all the women who are a little bit like this, right? You are not alone. There's connection with you, Emma, especially. I love this. And a lot of your case studies as well, Anita. This is what I appreciated. There's hope and we can do something to make ourselves feel better. So until next time, thank you both so much for coming on and talking to everybody about your process. And I can't wait to have you both on again in a future episode. Thank you. It was lovely. Thank you. Thanks, Ange. Thanks, Sam. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Writers Talking. Join us next time for more Writers in Conversation as we delve into the writer's process, their passions, and a little bit about their books. Don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast player and follow us on Instagram at writers underscore talking underscore podcast.